from the west coast of America and the front lines of American healthcare, now via a brand new microphone. I'm the Dashing MD at dashingmd.yahoo.com and broadcasting at feeds.feedburner.com backslash dashingmd, iTunes, and podcast directories everywhere. Welcome to the Dashing MD podcast. Today, uh, well, let's catch you up on where things are. I have moved to the university hospital now. I'm back in that maze of bureaucracy, a place where everything takes twice as much effort and is three times less likely to succeed than any of the other hospitals we work at. It's a profoundly frustrating place to be where we work fewer hours, but each of those hours is so much more painful than the hours we work elsewhere that it seems like an all-consuming thing, even if we're there only 12 hours a day, five days a week for the most part. I turned 30 last week. That's the other big news, uh, putting me a couple years older than most people in my class, but I think a few more years wiser as well, uh, based on my past life experiences bearing this surgical burden, this experience that is residency, I think is easier for being able to put it in some sort of global perspective. And it was a great opportunity to hear from friends and family and to be reminded of a whole world that exists out there where people don't do what I do every day or know about what it is that I'm up to every day. A place where people don't find it common to see the things I see. And I think the fact that medicine is a place where you see extraordinary things makes that maybe more important than it would be otherwise. But uh, I think in any profession where your job is all-consuming, it's so valuable to hear from people who have nothing to do with what you do for your work day in and day out. And out here, moved far away from most of my family and most of my friends, it's a good reminder that there's a whole world out there. Today, I think we'll talk a little bit about uh, some things that are in the news recently. First, uh, there was a story over the past week about Dick Cheney and his deep venous thrombosis, his blood clot in his leg that was sort of a quick little one-off press piece for a day or two. Um, It's ironic that this happened to him, or I don't know if irony is the right word, but... uh, It's interesting that this happened to him during National Deep Venous Thrombosis Month, a whole month devoted, as every month seems to be devoted to some theme in healthcare and other things, uh, to recognizing the signs, symptoms, and importance of deep venous thrombosis. These are these clots that you can get in your legs. Usually you see them in people who uh, have been sitting in planes for a long stretch of time or in cars for a long stretch of time and without moving their legs they they get slowed venous return from their legs the blood sort of pools in their veins of their legs and it uh, clots up and those clots can then come loose go up through the bloodstream through the heart and into the lungs where they cause what's called a pulmonary embolism and that is uh, highly fatal so interesting that uh, it made the news for Dick Cheney um but interesting also the way that they sort of brush off the fact that he is going to now be on blood thinners 
and uh, that the treatment is a sure thing, secure sort of thing. We see a lot of deep venous thrombosis DVTs in practice. We see them in the hospital all the time. People laying on uh, surgery tables for long periods of time are very prone to getting them, and people obviously who are mobilized in hospital beds are prone to getting them. People who have inflammatory conditions for other reasons, like cancer, which are a lot of the people that we do patient, uh, operations on, are very prone to get them. So we see them a lot, and it's not at all infrequent for us to get called in the middle of the night with a report of a patient who uh, maybe is having difficulty breathing, or whose blood pressure and heart rate are now out of control, or who suddenly has been found down, dead even, in bed from a pulmonary embolus the result of a deep venous thrombosis. And that said, the risks of anticoagulation are extraordinary too. I mean, here you're taking someone's blood uh, and inhibiting its ability to clot. And yes, that's good for people who are forming clots in their arms and legs, but it's a pretty dangerous thing for anybody who should then fall down, for instance, and hit their head. One of the surgery attendings here likes to say that the biggest cause of death in one of our more affluent suburbs is Coumadin. Coumadin is a, the blood thinner that presumably Cheney and everybody else has put on, and it causes uh, amazing bleeds when people fall and hit their heads. Um, these just sort of whole head filling bleeds um, that require emergent neurosurgery, and even then these patients often don't do well. It's really an amazing field in medicine, this quest for a way to anticoagulate people in such a way that they don't have this huge bleeding risk, and that's a little bit more predictable, too. You give people Coumadin, and you, you can't usually let them leave the hospital while they're becoming therapeutic on it, while their blood levels are adjusting, and that can take three or four days, and we often have patients in the hospital called Coumadin hostages who are there while we individualize their Coumadin routine. Everybody takes a different dose. People take crazy doses and come up with all sorts of different plans in different amounts in every given day, um, you know, holding a day here and there. Uh, it requires frequent blood testing, and it's totally unpredictable. It's also completely reliant on your diet, so changing your diet at all can throw your coagulation completely out of whack. I remember my grandmother was in the hospital for a knee operation and she was anticoagulated afterwards for a little while and she kept going up and up and up on her Coumadin dosing and we couldn't figure out what was going on and then we I was sitting in her room one day and my aunt brought in uh, her lunch which because she was anemic and they were trying to build up her blood counts consisted entirely of liver and broccoli which also contain huge amounts of vitamin K which counteracts Coumadin and there was the root of the problem but there was no reason she would necessarily have known that. So, Dick Cheney on Coumadin now. That's an item from the news. Another thing that obviously has been making a huge play in the press over the past week or two is the story of Walter Reed Medical Center in D.C., where veterans have been receiving what sounds like astonishingly poor care after the war in Iraq. And I think it's fascinating to look at that from the perspective of someone in medicine for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it's so clear 
being in this system, it's so obvious how what happened there could happen there. Uh, healthcare has become so bloated, and the paperwork involved, and the the system of how healthcare is provided, even in civilian organizations, which presumably are more inclined towards efficiency than the military apparatus, that it is amazing to me that patients ever manage to get to follow up or get their labs done or have the results tracked from one place to another. I mean, it is truly astonishing that it happens at all, given how broken the system often seems. And the other thing that really struck me about that story is that it reminded me so clearly of what it means to take care of soldiers and veterans, of just how remarkable these people are and of how much they need us to be there for them. We don't work with active military in my program, but we do work with the VA hospital a lot. And I've gotten to know the surgeons at the VA very well, and they're great people. And the patients in the VA hospitals are amazing people. They are so happy to be being provided for and so appreciative of the care that we give them and so willing for us as residents to play a major role in their care, whereas in private hospitals we're often sort of looked down upon and regarded as students and as people who uh, get in the way or who endanger patients' lives by not being the attending surgeon but still taking care of them. Uh, you know, the veterans are thrilled to have residents taking care of them. They're they'll often tell the attendings to let us do the operation on them because they recognize the value of the training and they are and they're just happy to be there and to be taken care of and they trust us which is remarkable and uncommon and I think in modern medicine but they also have to navigate such an extraordinarily Byzantine system and, and the VA hospitals are actually amazingly good at providing care uh, they're much of their system is computerized, their record keeping is meticulous, but they are a giant bureaucracy and I think working through it and, and putting up with the sort of giant juggernaut aspect of this government health system is taxing and, and requires individuals to really make a lot of sacrifices that in private medicine we would never feel comfortable asking people to make. And the food is awful. But what I think really makes me glad about working in the VA in these times, these strange times, is that it gives me a chance to see and put a human face and a name to America's soldiers in a way that I think otherwise would be very hypothetical to me. I have a cousin who was in the Marines for a little while. I went to Iraq, um, and I know a couple other people who are in or affiliated with the military, but I really have no personal sense of this war, at least I wouldn't if I didn't work at the VA hospital, where we are starting now to see these veterans of the war and starting to get a sense of them as individuals and to hear their stories as individual people. And I think it's a sort of interesting thing at the VA that most of the doctors that you talk to are extraordinarily pro-soldier but extraordinarily anti-war, and I think that's because they know what, and they see face-to-face -face what war entails. And so these people who work 
you know, one step removed from the Defense Department have so little regard for the Defense Department and for the way that they send our patients off and for their, what they send them back looking like for us to care for. I think it's a model for all of us to follow, to be supportive of the soldiers, but not supportive of their situations necessarily that they are forced to go into. Anyway, it's a little more preaching and proselytizing than my usual podcast, um, but I'm in a political state of mind of late, and uh, I hope that uh, you share your thoughts, feelings with me on these and any other topic that suits your interest. This is the Dashing MD Podcast, and I am the Dashing Doctor. Please send me an email at dashingmd at yahoo.com, or you can post the blog, dashingmd.blogspot.com, which I am trying to update with links to articles and other things so that it actually is something worth visiting now and again. Or there's always just subscribing to the feed. You know, I don't tell anyone about this podcast. I remain anonymous. So the feed grows by word of mouth and it continues to grow. And it's a thrill to be able to talk to all of you. Uh, And however you found us, we're glad you're here. Until next week, then, I'm the Dashing Doctor. So long.